Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Hello and welcome into another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Today we have some repeat guests, but folk that we are super excited to uh, talk to again. Um, we have with us, of course, Dr. James Cohen and Dr. Joe Flynn. Uh, both are professors uh, at NIU, Northern Illinois University, um, which uh, now we can both say is our alma mater. Um, I, uh, Lisette's been there. Uh, she's, she stayed true to NIU all the way through, uh, and uh, I joined in the master's program, and we're both back in the EDS. We're so excited to have uh, these two uh, gentlemen here with us um, and uh, to get started with a conversation about their um, NIU social justice camp, uh, which, again, we both have attended. Um, welcome in today, Dr. Cohen and Dr. Flynn. Thank you for having us. All right, thanks a lot. <clears throat> Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. So, so, okay, we got NIU Social Justice Camp, perhaps the place that we start for our listeners who um, are listening from around the world or perhaps are not familiar with this. Can you just start off by telling us a little bit about this social justice camp, right? This is a whole camp dedicated to social justice. Yeah, um, the Social Justice Summer Camp uh, going into its fifth year um, this uh, June is um, a professional development uh, professional development experience that we created um, where we are bringing teachers to the campus of Northern Illinois University and having a somewhat full-blown camp experience. I mean, nobody's out sleeping in tents. However, um, we have the, uh, our participants come, um, they arrive on um, a Monday during the day and stick with us till Thursday. And every day we have keynote addresses, plenary sessions, uh, breakout sessions, uh, and an evening film series. And this, this arrangement allows something really important to happen when discussing social justice uh, and diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in education. And that is, it allows the luxury of time. Oftentimes when teachers are receiving professional development around oftentimes complex issues, they really don't have the time to decompress and consider the ideas and um, you know, share their thoughts with their colleagues and really work through an idea. Um, usually, you know, a PD session for teachers happens after school for an hour and a half or maybe during um, uh, a school improvement day or something like that. 
But that even in those arrangements, it doesn't really give people the time to really sit with ideas and know that there's somebody around who can answer a question at a moment's notice or anything like that. And we've come to find that it's, it's a really invigorating and um, deeply moving experience, you know, having that ability to dive deeply into a wide range of issues while also um, having the opportunity to network with other uh, professionals who are interested in this uh, kind of work, as well as learn um, a little bit about NIU and the programs that we provide as um, a college of education and other um, structured professional uh, development opportunities that educators can have to them. But we think that what we're doing is really, really important. And we feel uh, fundamentally that at the end of the day, the more that people have the opportunity to talk through um, these ideas, um, the more comfortable they can become with them and the more deeply they can think about and collaborate with others on how to implement ideas and how to be reflective of ideas. And the beautiful thing about it is also just to piggyback on what Joe is saying, <clears throat> there's time scheduled in the day uh, where, where the, the participants or the campers, we call them, we're the counselors, they're the campers. <laughs> we try to go with the theme. <laughs> I was a camper, eh? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you'll see a lot of campers sitting around discussing. Mm -hmm. And when you go up or walk by them or walk near them and or you stop and listen, they're not talking about what's going on at, you know, in, in what, outside. They're talking about the topic or the theme or the idea, the content that they just left a workshop from, mm -hmm. a presentation from. They're talking about these issues and they're delving deeply into them so that they gain, they gain a deeper understanding of these issues. Mm -hmm. Like Joe was saying, it's so important that it's not a sit and get, right? Mm -hmm. That Frarian banking model where, the person stands up in front of the room, gives you all this content knowledge, and you're supposed to just like open up your head and allow them to deposit <laughs> it into it. And then after you leave, you know, once the guy or gal leaves, then you close it and then you, you move on. It's not like that. You actually have opportunity to sit around and discuss mm -hmm. with your colleagues. And then, of course, at the end of this, at, at the end of the three day conference or camp, uh, we say, now what? And we provide uh, several, several hours for the campers to sit in groups from their, you know, the idea is to send to, for an administrator and several teachers from one school building to go as a team. Mm -hmm. And so that by the, on the third day of the, of the camp, uh, we have all these guiding questions and uh, we, we have them sit in their, in their teams and they discuss, all right, now what? What do we want to do with all this new information that we just learned? What, how, what, what kind of, where do we want to go from here? And I think that is, that is something also that you don't get at a typical conference. You don't get that individualized attention. You're not getting that, that now what uh, phase in, in the learning process mm -hmm. or in the internalization process. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, we've, we've tweaked the conference over the years and, you know, with the schedule and things, but I think we've, we've uh, hit a really good schedule now. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. 
You know, that's one of the things that I wanted um, to ask about because I was reflecting on when I attended, I was still a, a classroom teacher. Um, and right now I am a building principal. So I'm trying to think back <laughs> to, was this around the time when the camp started, was this around the time um, that Trump was running for president? I can't quite remember anymore. And, but it's, it was definitely pre-George Floyd, but I don't know if it was during um, Trump running for office and he had made some statements, like what was the impetus for the camp? And, you know, after, you know, post-George Floyd, how has it evolved? Has that had any influence on um, the way that you um, organize the camp or even the sessions that you provide? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I believe if my, you know, I'm getting older, so my dates are often fail me, but I believe the first camp was in the uh, summer of 2017. Mm -hmm. um, so it was um, uh, the first year of the Trump administration. Okay. So although um, <laughs> I'm not going to be cheeky that way, I'll just say that um, Donald Trump had absolutely nothing to do with the creation of this camp. Um, it, it wasn't, I mean, he really literally wasn't on the radar. He wasn't okay. about that, that at all because, you know, these issues predate and will probably last much longer than Mr. Trump is around um, in whatever capacity that might be. So um, the, the idea for the camp actually originated um, in an attempt to come up with something that kind of uh, allowed uh, interdisciplinary teams of teachers, um, particularly middle school teachers, and teams of uh, teams of four, which include um, math, science, uh, social studies, and language arts, um, to bring teams of four to campus. Initially, it was for a day. Uh, in the first half of the day, we, you know, talk about social justice issues. In the second half of the day, we talk about um, uh, interdisciplinary teaching practices. And um, that kind of blossomed. Um, I, um, I started the, um, the process and uh, went to our department chair at the time. And um, I had then, after getting the, the clearance from her to proceed, um, I then reached out to uh, Dr. Cohen and Dr. Michael Mandarino, our, our, the, the third of, of our, our three-headed monster. And oh, um, <laughs> Dr. Mandarino um, was formerly at uh, NIU. Um, he was one of our colleagues, but he uh, left to go uh, be the director of curriculum at Leyden Public Schools um, over uh, in the uh, near west suburbs of Chicago. And um, hooking up with those two guys uh, expanded our um, range of ideas. And one of the first things we realized was a day is not going to be long enough. It, it's just not going to be enough time. So the next thing you know, we went from a day to a four-day experience and um, and never looked back. So Dr. Cohen, can you maybe speak to also like how it has evolved? Um, you know, how have the sessions changed or um, yeah, just what are some of the changes that you guys have implemented? Well, COVID really changed a lot. 
Sure. Right. So for the first three years, we had um, we had we had breakout sessions. We'd have the plenary in the morning. We'd have breakout sessions in the afternoon or in the latter morning and early afternoon. And then we'd have after dinner, we would have a keynote and then a um, a film series at night. And the film series, like each one of us, Mike, Joe, and I would show, we're all interested in different things regarding multicultural ed or social justice. Like my area is undocumented immigration um, and Mike's is about literacy, critical literacy. Joe is you know, hip hop and black history and, um, and, and the black experience in the United States. So we um, would always show videos respective of each other's interests. So people would have the opportunity or, to go to each one. Um, now what we're doing, so, so for, for the first three years, that's how we did it. For the last uh, two years, the first year we had a, a podcast series and um, because COVID was full, full blown that summer, so we couldn't do any, it was the first summer of COVID. And then last summer we did a film series where each of us did a, um, a different respective video and they were to watch it beforehand and then they get online with us and we, we unpack it for like an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And it was really nice. I mean, we, we, the discussions were just fruitful, beautiful in depth and thoughtful. This summer, we're changing the schedule a little bit. Uh, the, the film series, the, 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 the keynotes are gonna be before dinner. And that is gonna allow us to have the film series a little bit earlier um, cause you know, ha starting a movie at eight 30, finishing at 10, discussing, having the discussion go for an hour. So you're looking at 11 and then my brain shuts off at around 11, 11, 11 30 or so. I'm not like Mike and Joe who could go to two o'clock in the morning. I, I have to, I need my beauty sleep. <laughs> and obviously I need a lot of it. <laughs> so, um, so the, the idea is to, to make the nights a little bit earlier because we're waking, you know, everyone starts breakfast at 7 a.m. And, you know, we just start moving right away uh, with our first plenary. Like each one of us does a plenary in the morning. Now this, uh, something else different this summer that we're doing is we've invited Dana Esawi, who is a counseling professor. And she, she um, wrote her dissertation on refugees, on Palestinian refugees. And so she's just a remarkable human being, super bright, uh, just a wonderful personality. And we're very excited to welcome her aboard as our fourth counselor. So she and I will be just doing one of the plenaries in the morning together, uh, a combined plenary, um, I think maybe the second day of the, of the camp. Um, I'm going to have to leave early the camp this summer because I'm I'm going to Indonesia for three weeks. So, um, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> when am I going to get to go to Indonesia? Come on now. <laughs> right, right. So, so you all have talked a little bit about um, its origins, some of the changes you're making for this year. Um, you know, I guess part of what I'm wondering is, is where do you see the camp in, in a few years from now, right? Where would you like to see it get to and grow to? Um, I know, um, you know, already we've seen uh, some some growth in the camp in the year that I was there. Um, you know, rooms were full. 
Um, and I think had COVID not interrupted, we'd be talking about hosting two or three camps in a summer because, you know, it, it was growing in that direction. So can you talk a little bit about where you'd like to see uh, the camp kind of grow to? We want to limit it at 150. Uh, one of the, one of the, the concerns is if it gets beyond the 150, it loses its intimacy. Intimacy, and so we really want to keep it at a, at a, at a lower, not lower, at a, at a limited capacity of 150. That's yeah, and in addition to that, you know, one of the things about the camp is, you know, we're we're counselors. So if you think back to you know the the old school summer camp. The counselors were always around um, there to assist the campers and and um, help mentor campers as well as design uh, the daily schedule and lead activities and so on and so forth. So we're always walking around and available to people if they have questions or if they have an idea or if uh, you know something was said in the previous session that's just you know, really itching at their insides to get out. So, um, you know, have, you know, keeping the camp at a, at a maximum of, of 150 um, gives us the space to be able to sustain, you know, that kind of relationship with our participants, as opposed to say, allowing the camp to go to 300 people, which on one hand, fiscally would be amazing, right? You know, more the merrier, but it, I think, you know, once you start getting upwards 200 people, now you're just becoming, you know, your typical conference and all of the uh, accoutrements of the summer camp experience is now replaced with something different. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here because Maurice and I function as building principals. And again, when we attended, when we were the campers, we were still, I think, teaching. Um, As Maurice and I have continued to grow as leaders, um, we have noticed that oftentimes when, you know, social justice conversations come up, um, we're often looked to or asked about and kind of having that having to be that spokesperson. Um, are you inviting more leaders? Are you seeing a, a, an increase in like district level leaders attending summer camp? And, um, you know, have you continued relationships with separate di- districts to carry this work on beyond summer? Before, before COVID hit, mm-hmm. that was the intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually had planned with one school district to do a, I think it was um, 2.5, it was 3.5 or it was going to be summer camp 2.5 or summer camp 3.5, something like that. And we were going to go to that district in the, in, in the winter time, mm-hmm. sometime during winter and uh, get together with the campers who attended over the summer and say, okay, how are things going? What can we do? and uh, work with them again. Um, administrators are absolutely welcome. In fact, most, in most districts, they are sending administrators. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, we're actually very excited about that. And because it's the team concept, you know, that they, they come in a team, uh, administrators are, we've had superintendents. In fact, 
DeKalb superintendent, I believe is coming this summer. Uh, and many of her administrative team will be coming this summer. They're sending 45 people. Mm. So, I mean, this is a really, it's a, um, it's an all-inclusive, not just for educators, but we're also actually adding a counseling strand for school counselors, because we're realizing that with the, with this day and age where there's so much trauma, uh, the kids are experiencing so much trauma mm -hmm. and whether it's uh, from society as a whole, you know, filling the kids with anxiety and stress and, or from school or from, from whatever area, uh, teachers and administrators and counselors really need to be more updated on how to, how to respond and how to interact and engage kids from this trauma-informed care, so a trauma-informed teaching. So we have now done, we're, we're creating a strand specifically for school counselors. And, you know, of course, teachers and, and administrators and anybody else who wants to attend those strands are allowed to. There's, we're not like saying oh, it's only for counselors, uh, but we've already uh, put on the slate to, to invite all these different uh, uh, counselors to talk about various aspects of of how to work, how to respond, and how to engage kids from a more socio-emotional level and trauma-informed care level. Mm -hmm. So we're expanding our understandings. Like we were going to be doing a um, community college strand mm -hmm. the last time. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do that this summer, but that might be. That's that. I don't think we've taken it off the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I know that our superintendent had talked about wanting to take a group from West Chicago. Yeah. Although here's the thing, we get out a little later. So our last days are a little, um, camp would be over. So just putting a little plug in there. Like if you <laughs> want to recruit some districts in DuPage County, cause we'd be extremely interested in that. Um, but I think that there were some conflicts in terms of dates. Yeah, yeah the, uh, scheduling is always uh, somewhat of a challenge. We we, we tried to keep it consistent, but yeah. we're um, you know trying to navigate this um, this this break between the end of our semester, the end of uh, K twelve schools um, on the average, uh, and the beginning of the next semester because some of our participants, of course are going to be enrolled in summer uh, courses at NIU or other um, colleges and universities in the area. So we have to find these, these spaces that we can consider breaks in the normal schedule. Um, so that's, that's the primary motivator for why it's scheduled when it is. <clears throat> so it sounds like a West Chicago problem, not a social, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no. Yeah, right? <laughs> so I wanted to jump in here with a question. I think, right, when we think about the work that you all are doing with this camp, um, and we also think about um, some of the difficulties that education has faced over the last two years, um, I, I've got to I've gotta ask, right, um, with this anti-racist, anti Right, which is interesting, right? Because if you're going to be anti-anti-racist, I don't you're know racist. that people understand that you're <laughs> saying I am racist. But with with this um, critical definition, race theory, right? 
Right, by definition. With this critical race theory attack, some of these different pieces, um, has that has that shown up yet in some of the work that you all are doing um, in terms of either pushback or you all being intentional about, um, you know, kind of jumping out uh, in front of it, right? Um, and, and I bring this up because, um, Dr. Flynn, you did some work uh, with uh, DeKalb, uh, ROE and my my um, wife works for them, and then my wife's going to be as a school board member for DeKalb is going to be uh, attending the camp this summer. And I know that it's conversations that have shown up right at school board meetings. Can you all just you know expound on that a little bit? Some of the the the, the anti 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 racist work that you're doing. <laughs> Um, well, thank you for that question. It's a, uh, obviously, it's a timely and important question. Um, I personally, in the work that I've gone out and done, haven't received any serious backlash. Um, now, that could very well be, it could very well be the case that people are just being polite and don't want to get into it. You know, I'm not going to say that that's, that explanation is off the table. But with that being said, um, the participants that I've worked with in, in professional development have at least listened and been open to hearing about what critical race theory is uh, specifically in, in this context. Um, so, but with that being said, I'm also try to approach the conversation about critical race theory um, sans politics, which is kind of kind of a strange thing to say because critical race theory by its very nature is a highly political program, right? It's, it's, it's a very political idea. It's a bold political statement to stand flat-footed and say one of the assumptions that we make as um, uh, 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 a tradition of, uh, of researchers, scholars, analysts, etc., is that racism is real and ingrained into American institutions and society. You know, that's a bold political statement. But with that being said, I also think that when you first and foremost define what critical race theory is and help people understand where critical race theory came from, you know, what were the ideas or the questions that folks like Derek Bell and, and, and others were grappling with uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, critical race theory becomes a little less scary. And then furthermore, when you start explaining what the, the theoretical and methodological approaches are in critical race theory, it's like, oh, is that what they're doing? And you know, then taking people through a few examples of what critical race theory scholarship looks like, you know, or what are some of the ideas that critical race theorists have put forward? Um, you know, I was working with um, a, 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 actually a corporate group um, uh, earlier this week. And it was really interesting because as I began to really explain and, and dive into, you know, ideas like intersectionality and interest convergence and counter story, um, there seemed to me to be a, oh, this is what it is. You know, like, well, okay, it, it makes sense to ask a question like that, right? You know, and and then if you don't like get really deep into it and start, you know, quoting statistics about, you know, incarceration rates and, 
you know, who's on probation and who's on probation longer and, you know, all of these other uh, objective challenges with law and um, criminal justice, you know, some of these questions become much more clear. And, you know, I think you can even argue it necessitates asking the question, if we've made all of these law and policy changes over centuries, then why is it, why do these disparities continue to exist is essentially the question of critical race theorists. And you have to think about and talk about race and how race works in our lives in order to answer those questions. So what we try to do as um, uh, professional developers, is that the term, James? Uh, yeah, as, so what we do as professional developers is we try to demystify the topic and remove it from the political considerations to help people understand first and foremost, what is this phenomenon? Why, and then once people understand what it is, then we can talk about how it's become politically manipulated and what are the implications of that, right? Um, I, I think it's important for people who aren't, especially those of us who aren't steeped in academia and surrounded by this all the time, recognize that there are an infinite number of what we call conceptual frameworks to analyze virtually anything, right? And some of them are more controversial than others. Um, and critical race theory is another conceptual framework to use to analyze a situation or a problem. But I always say that if you don't look for some things, then you're not going to see them. Right. So if you don't want to look for race and how racism has an impact, then you're not going to see it. But as soon as you put that lens on, you're going to see it. And, and, and that's how, you know, uh, these larger uh, ideas around oppression happen to work. The less they get talked about, the more powerful they are. The more they're talked about, the more contested they are. Mm. Um, yeah, wow. So, you know, I, lo I love the way and I appreciate the way you just explained that. And, um, you know, you're, how you said you want to demystify this because it has just become such an emotionally charged topic that to be able to speak to it objectively um, with statistical data to support that um, is a very, I, I think it's a nice approach. That's something that I fully acknowledge that I struggle with um, to always, you know, stay as objective and calm as possible. Maurice can speak to that. One of the things I often talk about is that male privilege piece, especially when you're the only woman in the room, or even if you are with other women in the room and how Maurice and I can say the exact same thing and it'll be better received from Maurice. And it's still, oh, okay, you know what? See what I mean? And I always <laughs> tell him, and I always tell him the ability to not have to speak to it. Cause there are moments where he will try to remain neutral. And I said, I don't have that luxury to remain neutral because this is directly impacting me. Um, but, you know, I think that that is a really good point that you just made of like, hey, let's just talk about this objectively. Let's remove the politics from it. And I can definitely provide statistical data, Maurice, on how these things happen to women. 
yeah, uh, and, and by the way, you're you're not going to receive an argument from me, but <laughs> it's not happening, right? I think I think though one of the things that Lissette is talking to is I, what I hope is some of those outcomes of the camps, right? And that's kind of what's going to be um, uh, maybe our my, my last question for you today. Um, but what I what I would hope would be one of the outcomes, and certainly was an outcome for me right, is that challenge to not remain silent in those moments where even if it's not necessarily impacting me, right, uh, um, as a male in the room, to be able to still call out that injustice. So when you all think about, um, you know, the camp that you're going to run this year, um, what, what are some of those outcomes that you're hopeful that folk are walking away from camp with this tool or with this inspiration or with this, the, the ability to do such and such? You know, the, one of the, um, it's a, according to Christine Bennett, the second goal of multicultural ed is to uh, the intracultural consciousness, understanding yourself as a cultural being. And I think that <clears throat> we provide so much time for the, the participants, the campers, to reflect and to internalize the content that um, that goal is, you know, you can't understand others unless you understand yourself first, right? And that's, that's what we're hoping that at different levels, you know, everyone who goes to a, uh, the camp starts at a different place. And so those who are starting at the, uh, at the level where they're still understanding themselves as cultural beings, I mean, that process never ends, of course, but if they're at the very beginning of that, that process, we're hoping that they will leave with a better understanding of the issues at hand, but also of themselves as cultural beings and how, that, how we as individuals position others and how others position us, right? Depending on the intersectionality of all of our identities. The, we're also hoping that um, the several of the other goals that Bennett talks about, and you know, that's intercultural conscious, intercultural competence, anti-racist, anti-misogynistic education, you know, global awareness. We're hoping that they understand these things as well. And like the sixth goal of Bennett is is action, social action, and we're hoping that the participants will leave understanding that if they don't take action, no one else will, or very few other people will. And it, re it really, uh, like this is something I tell my students all the time. It's like, if you don't take action, if you don't advocate for your kids, no one else in your school is gonna advocate for your kids and your kid's family. So you have to step up and you know, when, when half of my class is, is white women, they say, well, you know, it's so exhausting. It's like, yeah, it's exhausting. Uh, for white people, it's very exhausting, but we have the option to step back and go home and not think about it. Black and brown folks, they don't have that option. It's a, literally a life or death situation for them. And so we as white folks don't have the option to, to we do have the option, but we shouldn't have the option. And when, you know, like people like Ted Cruz, not to say like a, a, an awful name, but. Um, <laughs> no, when, <laughs> Yeah. Like when he talks about, well, they're trying to make us feel guilty. Like no one's trying to make you feel guilty. 
That's not the point of this. Guilt is not going to make us act, not going to make us act. It's not going to do anything for us. It's just we were born into this system. And now that our understanding of the system is at a place where we can make a difference, we it it's ethically and morally on us to make a difference. The the the, the metaphor I like to use is of a wheel, right? Like a bicycle tire. And we could either be a spoke supporting that wheel and the, the, the system of injustice that is continuing, or we could be a stick and we could either pop that tire or stick this, the, put the stick in the tire itself so that it stops moving. We have to do something because the way that, you know, the status quo as Ibram Kendi is talking about is, and critical race theory says, is inherently foundationally racist. It's based on racism. All you have to do is look at our laws mm-hmm. and the foundation of our laws. So if we are allowing the status quo to continue, then we are fundamentally being racist. So we have to always be thinking about how to be anti-racist, putting a stick into that, into that wheel and either slowing it down or stopping it altogether or changing it somehow. And that's what we, that's, that's what my plan is, my goal, my hope is that the participant, the campers, when they finish participating in this camp at whatever level they are and their, their own process, um, they will be able to take action because without action, then the status quo is just going to continue. Yeah. I, I appreciate all that, James, because, um, you know, for me, I think one of the major goals of the camp um, has been to help people recognize that it's an unfolding dialogue mm-hmm. that um, the more comfortable and more understanding you get of uh, this broad range of issues under the umbrella of social justice, uh, the more you realize that you kind of have to keep engaged and keep conversating or, or dialoguing, um, keep advancing your own knowledge and understanding and keep building your own networks of, of people because it takes a lifetime to learn how to exist within a particular system, right? And it takes a lifetime to learn how to undo that system. So we want to dispel the notion that well, if I just go to this camp and learn a few things, then everything will be okay. And it's like, no, that's that's not really <laughs> how it is, right? It's it's an ongoing um, uh, it's an ongoing experience of learning, unlearning, relearning, and over and over and over and over again. And of course, sharing that with um, your colleagues in your community. Teachers are a, a, a very highly contested role in American society. Otherwise, you would not have all of these parents showing up at school board meetings um, protesting for various issues, you know, whether that's critical race theory or school uniforms or free speech issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so education in and of itself is highly political, and teachers are the foot soldiers that have to deal with all of that. And so it's not so much that I think that it's important that 
teachers be a certain way so much as it is it's important that teachers think about certain issues and ideas because they have a direct impact on their students' experiences. And there's far too much research and uh, scholarship out there at this point that shows that when children are treated with respect, when they feel as though they have a place or a sense of belonging within a classroom, when their uh, teachers have strong relationships or strong connections with their families, um, when that child's culture and backgrounds and ideals or values are held um, in common respect along with everyone else's, those children tend to do better in school. There's too much research to say that that's not true. So um, I, what I hope that people uh, learn from the camp is not only a range of strategies, not only um, a foundational understanding of sometimes uh, ideas that are complicated or, and complex, but that this is an ongoing project that is going to continue to unfold over time. And you know the people who have moved further down the field because they are far less frustrated or concerned with having that conversation and recognize for themselves that this is something that we're gonna be working on for a long time. It's definitely a journey, not a, not a location, right? Yeah. yeah. It's the journey, not the destination. It's the process, not the product. That's what I've been trying right. to tell my teachers. <laughs> right, oh, that's, that's so true. It's so true. All right. Well, thank you so much. It has been so nice to reconnect with the two of you. I hope that we can continue to um, engage in these conversations and um, hopefully even have you on for more episodes because I'm very curious, Dr. Flynn, what you were talking about with um, the whole idea of an accomplice. I definitely. Oh, <laughs> you know, I was oh there and I was like, okay. Simple. I can answer it now. Um, oh, let's go. Come on. <laughs> essentially, um, people have this idea that being an ally is the, the zenith of what uh, particularly white people can uh, be in this uh, struggle against racial oppression. And no, it's not just being an ally. Allies have a lot of luxury and, and privileges that people that see themselves as accomplices against racial oppression don't. So an, an ally, if you don't want to show up and be there, you don't have to. You don't really have to risk your neck for anything if you're an ally. You can just stand on the sidelines and say, rah, rah, rah. I or change your you, profile picture so to so Black Lives Matter. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's somewhat performative and, you know, it's it's it can oftentimes be really surface. But I think when you make that move to being an accomplice, you understand something that's really deeply important, that we are all caught up in the system of oppression. And it is in all of our interest to dismantle that system. You know, this isn't just something, this isn't a zero sum game. You know, this is about the development of a more beloved society in which people do feel and know that they are uh, free and open to become their best selves, right? You know, that's what this is supposed to be about. Um, so we try to encourage people to become accomplices in the struggle against racial oppression, as opposed to just an ally against a particular affinity group's history of oppression. So 
can you hear my dog barking? I hope not. <laughs> she is like so flipping out right okay, now. Okay, this is so funny because I just muted Maurice thinking it was his dog. Exactly. <laughs> hey, so but, Dr. Cohen and Dr. Flynn, if, if folk are listening to this episode before social justice camp has happened, can you tell them how they could be a part of it? And, and um, then we'll, we'll, we'll end there. Just go to the NIU website and type in social justice camp and it'll take you to the registration page. Hey, and you know what? Yeah, the camp, this episode, we can definitely link that in there. Yeah. The camp will be June 6th through 9th. Awesome. Uh, and uh, it's, we're, we're going to have uh, an amazing uh, roster of uh, keynote speakers that include uh, Dr. Goldie Muhammad. Um, I, I know that uh, Dr. Muhammad- genius. Uh, presence is is just like really high so uh, she's going to be joining us uh dr venus evans winners will also be joining us and uh dr evans winners will be talking about the criminalization of black girls um and we're also of course going to have one of our mainstays and probably now with this the sixth beetle <laughs> Uh, Dr. J.Q. Adams, uh, emeritus professor from Western uh, Illinois University, who will be talking to us about the intersection of education, uh, social justice, and spirituality, mm-hmm. and um, and then just a wide array of uh, breakout sessions. And James, Mike, and I, uh, and Dana will will also be uh, speaking as well. So. Yeah, maybe I'll do a session on being an accomplice and navigating critical race theory or something like that. I, I have no clue what I'm going to do yet. Yeah. <laughs> and, and y'all need to include some um, gender stuff too. I know intersectionality encompasses that, but that is something that um, it's really like I, I'm seeing it play out a lot. And I think it's because of, you know, just being at the leadership level, um, seeing how gender and you know, plays a huge part, even with like negotiating salaries, right? If you're a woman um, negotiating your salary, you're perceived as aggressive. Um, Whereas men are often encouraged to uh, negotiate their salaries and they're perceived as, you know, oh, you know, they're really um, vouching for what they're worth. So it's very interesting to me right now um, how gender plays into a lot of this and then add on top of that, right? um, Race and ethnicity. Yeah, it's complicated. Very. And I tried to get my, you know, white female counterparts to understand that, um, yes, we're we're women, but there's an additional layer. Right. And like Mickey Kendall says, um, I don't necessarily see my dad, who's a Mexican immigrant or my brothers or my cousins as the threat to me um, being able to. Um, have that upward mobility. They're not the threat, in my opinion. Oftentimes, the people who have, quote unquote, held me back have been um, white, male or female individuals. So it's interesting how sometimes feminists want to lump us all together, but our needs are so different. Seabell hooks. Hey, you're starting a whole nother episode. Now. I know, I can talk about that, this. That's, that's, that's why we're hey, this will be that bonus. This will be that bonus stuff, right? Like if you subscribe, <laughs> you can see the additional sidebars. <laughs> so, 
Well, again, thank you both for joining us this morning. Um, uh, we know you signed up for a half hour. Here we are at 1102. Uh, but we appreciate so much your your time, your energy, your effort. The work that you're doing in this area um, is is huge. So please know that that it is having an impact because you know we think about the idea that we both went to this camp and now we're both at another district continuing that work where DeKalb is continuing that work and and so as it continues to move out and expand, just know that that your impact and influence is continuing to spread you know, as, as folk go other places. So again, we appreciate you. For Black, Brown, and Bilingue, I am Maurice McDavid. And I'm Lisa Jacobson. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios.